Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. When I came across a missing persons case while scrolling through the Doe Network that I wanted to talk about, I never could have imagined how deep this case would truly go. Somewhere between 70 and 80,000 people are reported missing in Canada each year, and British Columbia, on Canada's west coast, has the highest amount of missing persons cases each year out of all of the Canadian provinces. With BC's vast rainforests and massive national parks, and having relatively densely populated cities, it's really not that surprising that so many people go missing each year from BC. But when young men with similar characteristics start vanishing without a trace within 100 kilometers of each other, it gets a lot harder to chalk it up to the layout of the province. Today is the first part of my investigation into the men disappearing from BC's southwest mainland. Get ready, because things are about to get shady. Today, I will be telling you about the disappearances of Asim Chaudhry, Brian Bromberger, and Jeff Sertel. Asim Chaudhry was a slim, 6'2", 24-year-old man living in the town of Burnaby, BC, which is actually attached to Vancouver. Asim was taking a postgraduate statistics course at Simon Fraser University. Just the year before, he had graduated with his degree in political science. Asim lived with his mother, Mansura, along with his siblings. Asim frequently went to the SFU campus to study in the library or to work out at the gym. He lived an active lifestyle and managed to achieve great grades in his courses. Following his graduation, Asim planned to teach in Korea. One of his close friends had recently moved to Japan to teach there, and Asim saw the joy and excitement it brought his friend while he was there. So Asim registered to teach in Korea, and he was antsy to go out and expand his horizons beyond British Columbia. However, just months after Asim had registered to teach in Korea, his plans fell through. Although this made him disappointed, Asim decided he should start looking for work in Burnaby. Unfortunately, Asim had no luck despite putting out numerous job applications, he couldn't seem to land a job. To improve his chances of finding employment, Asim decided to enroll in his postgraduate stats course. During these setbacks, Asim's mother, Mansura, was going through a divorce with Asim's father, which took a toll on Asim's mental state. With this combination of events dragging him down, Asim fell into a state of depression. Prior to this, Asim's mother said he had grown continually more anxious throughout his years attending university. While in this rut, Asim turned to reading. He finished book after book, pouring himself into worlds that provided reprieve from the slew of disappointments he faced. But this all began to change around April of 2007. Asim began showing interest in doing things with his family. He began hanging out with friends, attending the gym, and studying at the library again. Much to Mansura's relief, it appeared that her son as she knew him was coming back to her. 
In early July, while Asim was out and about, he encountered an old friend who he had fallen out of touch with. The two began chatting, and that day, he and his friend got together and watched a movie. From then on, he and Asim spent lots of time together, hanging out and enjoying one another's company. By all accounts, Asim was loving life and was back to who he was. On July 20th of 2007, Asim packed his gym bag and went downstairs to tell his older brother that he was headed to the library to study for his upcoming midterm. He then left his home around 2pm, but Asim never really went to the SFU library. After leaving his home, Asim headed out to hang out with his reacquainted friend. Asim's friend's girlfriend was out of town and he was left with the kids. The two of them hung out for hours until around 9pm when Asim suggested that his friend and his kids go out for ice cream at McDonald's. So the group headed out to do this. Around 10pm, Asim's friend took him to the Skytrain station at Production Way. Asim told his friend he was headed to the library to study for his midterm and boarded the train towards the SFU campus, but as far as we know, he never made it there. When Mansura came home, she noticed that Asim had left his stats textbook sitting on the dining room table, but didn't see him around. When she asked Asim's older brother where he was, he repeated what Asim had said to him, that he was at the SFU library to study for his midterm. Mansura figured he must have forgotten his textbooks, so she called him and let him know that they were still at home, but he actually never ended up answering his phone. So over the next few hours, Mansura continued to try and contact him, but she had no luck. Concern began to set in, and she knew that she had to call the police and report a sim missing. When she did so, the police came to question her, and they also connected the SFU campus security, who failed to turn up any evidence that he had ever been on campus at all that day. Mansura mentioned Asim's friend, and the police went to meet with him, and it was then that they learned that Asim spent the day with his friend. While this helped give police insight into the events of Asim's day, they ended up back where they started, with a missing person who was last seen headed to his school campus, but never arrived. None of the police investigations carried out unearthed new evidence in the case. Asim's bank cards were never used, and none of his texts or phone calls were ever answered, and he showed no traceable activity. The only notable thing was an email that he sent the day he disappeared to his friend in Japan. Asim had emailed him telling him how much he admired him and how he was a role model to Asim. Asim was described as having short black curly hair, a beard, glasses, but he didn't always wear his glasses. Asim was of East Indian descent, and he was last seen wearing dark gray sweatpants and a black sweater. To this day, there is no evidence pointing to the whereabouts or fate of Asim Chaudhry, but there are a few theories. The first is that Asim left to end his life. With the series of setbacks he had recently experienced along with his history of mental health problems and the strain his mother's divorce was putting on him, this seemed like a viable option. But Mansura says that she may have suspected that more if it had been two or three months ago, but recently, Asim had shown much improvement and was actually pretty happy again. Of course, you can't always tell the mental state of someone else, but I think it's important to take into account that Mansura thinks this is an unlikely situation. 
Additionally, Asim had packed a bag that his brother said looked especially full of clothes compared to what he normally would have packed, and this seems odd for someone intending to take their own life, which feeds into the next theory, that Asim willingly walked away from his life. Again, at first glance, this seems like a perfectly viable option based on everything I have told you. He may have wanted to start a new life to detach himself from the disappointments following him around, but this too has its flaws. Asim by all accounts was very close with his family and friends, and closer still to his mother. Asim rarely went anywhere without telling someone in his family, and never wanted them to worry. He cared for them deeply, and for those reasons, and for the fact that he hasn't used his bank cards or his cell phone since the night he disappeared, this theory sort of falls apart. So if he didn't kill himself, and he didn't run away, the remaining thoughts turn to foul play. If Asim had died by suicide, it would be highly unlikely that after all of these years, no evidence had turned up in searches carried out by volunteers and search dogs, especially since you can't exactly hide your body if you're going to kill yourself. But if Asim met with foul play, the chance of him leaving no trace becomes much greater, especially if someone was well-versed in how to kill and leave no trace. Although there isn't any concrete evidence to suggest that Asim was murdered, when you look at killers such as Israel Keys, many of his victims never showed evidence of foul play because they didn't leave anything behind, they just vanished. Furthermore, the area that Asim lived in had seen numerous disappearances of healthy young men. Begging the question, could all of these disappearances be linked? One more thing that was brought to my attention is that it seems that the Skytrain had a lot of cameras around it, so you would think that someone would know where Asim went. And it seems weird that police haven't released any information on what direction he was heading from the Skytrain. And with those cameras, police would at least have a general idea of where he had went, but nothing turned up. So that really adds to the mystery of his disappearance. The next case I'll be telling you about is about 18-year-old Brian Bromberger. Brian Bromberger lived in Burnaby, BC with his mom and dad. Brian worked at a warehouse in Burnaby. Brian drove around a 1988 Honda Civic that he had restored and worked on himself. This car was his pride and joy, so much so that he actually referred to it as his baby. Brian loved his job and family and playing video games. He was a dedicated worker who never missed a day of work and never even showed up late for his job. In May of 2007, Brian's parents were gone on vacation, so Brian was staying home alone. During this time, Brian continued to work and, and take care of his car, and every once in a while, he would go out and play video games with some friends. On May 31st, Brian was visiting a friend in New Westminster, just about a five-minute drive from his home in Burnaby. While he was there, he played video games with his friend and enjoyed his time out. Shortly after midnight, Brian told his friend he had to leave because he worked in the morning. Brian's friend walked with Brian to his car, which was parked in a nearby church parking lot. Once they arrived, the two said their goodbyes and Brian drove off towards his home. On the morning of June 1st, Brian's parents had come home from their vacation and when they returned to their home, they received a phone call that would change their lives. 
When Brian's parents answered the phone call, on the other end was a police chief calling to say that Brian's car was found abandoned at George Derby Center, a retirement home which his grandfather lived in that was about two minutes from his home. This call immediately set off alarm bells for Brian's parents, and they told the police that this needed to be treated as a missing persons investigation. See, Brian's parents knew that Brian would never abandon his car with the keys inside, especially not when he was so close to home. Additionally, Brian would never miss work, and he didn't even sleep outside of his own bed. Something was wrong. Quickly, a search team was assembled and attempts to find Brian ensued. About 25 volunteers and search dogs began scouring the area around the retirement home, which rested on the George Derby Conservation Area, a forested and marshy animal conservation zone. Searchers found the terrain immensely difficult to traverse, and they said they could see if he decided to cut through there to get home, how he could have gotten lost or injured. But he had no reason to cut through the conservation area, and his car was functional, so it's not like he had no way home. The car itself had no signs of a struggle or DNA evidence to suggest that a stranger had been in the vehicle. A few weeks after Bryant disappeared, his parents received a phone call where the caller said, Check your mailbox. When his parents did so, they found a note. The note was a ransom letter that requested payment for information on what happened to Brian and where he was at this time. Brian's parents took the note to the police and it was determined that the note was an attempt to extort the family and a man named Shaki Hossein was arrested on charges of extortion. After this, nothing new came from the case, but like in a Sims case, there are a few possibilities of what could have happened. The first possibility, as I previously mentioned, is that he wandered off into the conservation area and got injured and ended up dying out there. This idea makes sense when you consider the terrain and that he was parked near it, but that's about as much as we have to support the theory. But again, he had no reason to walk through the conservation area, and if he lived in the area, he likely knew his way around, and if he didn't, he probably realized how unsafe it was to wander in the area. Also, a 5.5 hectare search of the conservation zone yielded zero evidence that he had been there. With 25 people and search dogs, you would think that something would turn up if Brian had been anywhere near that place. So honestly, this theory seems pretty flimsy to me. Another suggestion is that he went there to end his life. But Brian had no previous mental health problems, and by all accounts, he was healthy and mentally sound, with no history of depression, anxiety, or anything else. Moreover, Brian loved his family and had a strong relationship with both his parents, and his friend he was with the night he disappeared said that he was in a perfectly fine mental state and that he seemed normal. So again, this doesn't check out either. Another suggestion was that maybe Brian had run away but this made even less sense than suicide. Brian loved his job, his family, his friends, and his car. If he wanted to leave, his parents are adamant that he would have taken his car with him. Also, there's been no activity on his bank account, his cell phone hasn't been used, and there's been no sightings of him, so that really makes this even less likely. Finally, the idea of foul play is at the forefront of everyone's minds, especially when the other option seems so unlikely. 
The main question is, how would someone have got him to get out of his car willingly if he did in fact meet with foul play? As I said before, there were no signs of a struggle around his car or signs of a stranger being in his car. There are conflicting reports as to whether or not the keys were actually in Brian's car, but most things do say they were in there. And if they were in fact in the car, then it seems unlikely that he thought he would have to leave his car for any long duration. I mean, if someone points a gun at you and tells you to get out of the car, it might not show signs of a struggle, but it's impossible to tell what actually happened. While police have had very few leads, an investigator on the case says he suspects that foul play is involved, because someone doesn't just disappear for so many years without a trace. It's almost unheard of. But in the end, there is no new evidence in this case to this day. Brian Bromberger remains a missing person. Brian has been described as having brown eyes, brown hair, he was about 6 feet tall and weighed about 185 pounds. Brian was last seen wearing a black t-shirt, shorts, and laceless white Adidas shoes. The next case I'll be telling you about is the one of 17-year-old Jeff Sertel. Jeff Sertel was 6 foot 1 and weighed about 150 pounds. He lived in the small town of Mission, about 50 kilometers away from Burnaby, with his mom and dad. Jeff attended high school and enjoyed gaming and enjoyed riding his blue bike that had a yellow front fork. He pretty much rode his bike everywhere he went. In late April, Jeff received his midterm report card and his grades weren't as good as what he usually achieved. So due to this, Jeff's father grounded him from using his computer for a few weeks as punishment. This upset Jeff, who enjoyed gaming on his computer, and also Jeff was a really good kid. He wasn't used to getting in trouble, so he was a bit shaken up by the experience. On April 28th of 2007, Jeff went with his dad to the video store to rent a movie. After they rented the movie, Jeff's dad went out for a date with Jeff's mom. After this, the three of them planned on watching the movie that they had just rented. But when Jeff's parents got back around 9, Jeff decided he didn't want to watch the movie with his family anymore, and instead he watched TV in his bedroom. Jeff's parents assumed that this was just because he was still upset about being grounded from his computer, so it really didn't seem that strange to them. Jeff's parents ended up watching the movie and then just went to bed. When Jeff's parents woke up, one of them went to get Jeff out of bed and they were surprised to see that he wasn't in his room and his bed hadn't even been slept in. This concerned Jeff's parents and they began trying to figure out where he could be. The first thing that they noticed was that Jeff's bike was missing, which showed them that he had likely taken it out for a ride the night before, but why hadn't he come back? Jeff's parents quickly contacted authorities, and a search for Jeff began. Unfortunately, as with the two cases prior to this one, the searches yielded no clues as to where Jeff had gone. Not even his bike could be found during these searches. It was determined that Jeff had left the house between the hours of midnight and 5am. Since Jeff's disappearance, there has been no cell phone activity, he hasn't used his bank account, and there's been no real trace of him. He even left $200 back in his home, and he didn't take any personal items with him, really, other than what he had on his person. However, there is one thing that may be the closest thing we have to a clue in this case. 
Not too long after Jeff disappeared, the Westminster Abbey and Mission had a break-in. During this break-in, only a crucifix was taken, but it's what was left behind that really shocked people. The thief had left behind a copy of a missing person's poster and items belonging to the person on the poster. The people from the Abbey told Jeff's parents that the poster was his and that the items belonged to Jeff, but police never confirmed that the poster and items were of Jeff's. But if they were, then it seems highly likely that Jeff met with foul play on the night that he disappeared. Jeff was last seen wearing dark jeans, a navy t-shirt, and a blue hoodie. Jeff was white and had brown hair and brown eyes, and he wore thin framed glasses. With little to go off of, Jeff's case, like the other two, remains unsolved and cold. These three disappearances happened to men who were around six feet tall. They all had brown eyes and dark hair. Each were described as slender. These men all disappeared without a trace, and it's hard to shake the feeling that they could be linked. But that feeling grows even stronger when you realize that there are far more than three men fitting this profile that have disappeared in the area. Next week, I will be telling you about more cases within this string of disappearances, and trust me, I have just began to scratch the surface of these ominous vanishings in BC's southwest. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shuli Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you wish to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.